Let me um, now get to the business of the day today, if I may, because uh, very kindly, um, Brigadier General Matthew Aveson uh, has agreed to come uh, from uh, the Canadian High Commission here in London uh, and uh, speak to you uh, today about an uncommon point of view um, and about military diplomacy, a much neglected aspect of perhaps the changing character of war. Delighted that you've come, uh, Matthew, to speak to us. Um, if you want the full biography, uh, I, what I can do is refer you to our website, but um, there are you know, perhaps um, important things to mention. And that is that this is somebody who has had on-the-ground um, experience. It's not as if uh, we're having someone coming in uh, with that sort of lovely sort of diplomatic education through one of the greater universities uh, in either North America or the United Kingdom. Um, this is somebody who has been on the ground and done it. Uh, and if you'll forgive me, I will not read through the entire working class experience. No, forgive me um, for it. But um, it is worth pointing out, I think, uh, crucially, that the CCW programme has a long-standing relationship uh, with the Royal Military College uh, of Canada. And we have a sort of memorandum of understanding that we wish to continue to build on that relationship and exchange views, <coughs> exchange personnel. And we haven't had much happen in the last 12 months. And so it's wonderful. Not only have we got you, Matthew, come, but we've also got Randall here as well. And we're now re-nourishing this relationship with Canada. And I'm therefore delighted that you've come so the floor is yours, Matthew, and uh, um, thank you. Thank you. Well, appreciate it very much. Yeah. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, for coming today. It's a real pleasure for me to be here, to be out of the office, to be quite frank, and doing things out in the field, as it were. Um, I don't know if I should reveal that well. The last time I spoke in front of a university audience, I was a young lieutenant, one year out of, uh, out of college myself, back talking to my peers about what my experiences were as a, uh, as a new subaltern in the battalion. And uh, that worked out so well, apparently, I filled my remit for 35 years. And so <laughs> you're the, uh, the first ones to, uh, to have the uh, experience of me again. Um, I'm very uh, humbled looking at the number of people and the quality of speaker you have coming to talk to you. I'd like to actually take up a duck out at 2 o'clock as well and hear what, uh, what's going on. Um, ethics in war, uh, law of war, and how um, things are panning out are extremely lively topics. Uh, in as much as it is in the battlefield where there have been a surgeon of lawyers uh, expert in military law, in humanitarian law, and other aspects of laws pertaining to military operations, or may be perceived as pertaining to military operations, uh, advise commanders on a daily basis. And that extends back into the preparation for combat and some of the aspects of why nations enter into conflict when they don't call it war, and how the military advice can be shaped by some of the le legal aspects of that is uh, the senior commanders as the chiefs of defense both to advise their politicians and what goes on. It's a very active debate, a uh, very uh, contested space, a lot of points of view, and uh, continues to evolve. So uh, interesting time to be here. My background very briefly is, uh, Rob mentioned, is that I have spent some time as a military diplomat. This is not my first opportunity. I've had uh, two others. The first was uh, as the Army advisor here in London from 04 to 07, and I'll talk a little bit about that as a precursor to the, the second of my experiences formally, which was as the defense advisor in Kabul in uh, 09, sorry, 0910, uh, which was a particularly dynamic period of time in Kabul, and I can talk about some of my experiences there as a military diplomat, whatever that is when it's at home, and I think that has changed considerably over the years, and certainly uh, there's an aspect of it that's changed from nation to nation depending on what nation you are representing and what nation you're representing your nation to. Uh, it can be quite a benign environment, quite a contested environment to go along, and certainly Kabul, I think, is a, a very unique space for military diplomacy. 
talk about that. So my, my other experience is I spent a great deal of time in the human resources field. Infantry as a background to start with, uh, and I had the pleasure of commanding battalions, but have been very involved in the management and leadership of people institutionally as well. So that also flavors some of my experience and what I look at when I, when I talk about military diplomacy outside the, um, the formal remit, which I'll talk about that in a little bit. So in getting to Afghanistan, uh, like pretty much every nation that found themselves there at one time or another, there's a bit of a story to how to get, how to get there. And I think it's, um, it, it it's useful for me to run over a number of things that uh, formed my experiences and shaped how I view um, military diplomacy, uh, both as a military diplomat and not, so that when we get to Afghanistan, you can understand some of the, perhaps why I went about exercising my responsibilities as an attaché to Canada in Afghanistan. And so we'll, we'll skip over that quickly. I'll talk uh, specifically about Cyprus, where I was a young officer uh, with a battalion in peacekeeping operations there. I'll talk about Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, and the operations that I uh, conducted there as a member of the European Committee Monitor Mission, Monitor Mission and, and uh, we'll talk about that. Very briefly, London, the precursor to my cattle experience, and then nine cattle. Um, how many of you have had military experience? Excellent. How many of you have been deployed on operations? About the same number. How many have been an attaché before? Good. <laughs> There's one. So uh, obviously, someone can hold up the red card and say you're lying at one point or another in anything I say. The um, the themes I'm going to talk about uh, in general that you, you'll see as I go through is, is really the aspect um, of uh, team building, how we go about team building. Uh, a very important aspect of military life is uh, from the infantry perspective, the perspective of the all arms team, pulling together those people who do different things to work closely and competently to solve the issues in front of them mostly about the delivery of high explosives onto a particular target to uh, eliminate its uh, operations, but uh, cover a host of other domains. Uh, when you start talking about the strategic level, and particularly in operations such as Afghanistan, um, the understanding of what is the all-arms team, uh, I think, uh, is, is still an evolving concept. Uh, related to that, I will want to talk about civil-military cooperation, coined as SIMP. Um, I'm not sure that there is a particularly good understanding these days of what CIMIC is now compared to what it might have been, say, 20 years ago, and that's related to that team building. And uh, the way I'm going to do this, I've got a very small number of slides, very basic, with some pictures to, uh, to keep it simple. And what I'd like to do is, is talk with you. And so as I go along, if you've got questions about what I say or you want to challenge me on the issue, please stop me and let's have a conversation about that. And my notes, I think, will cover about 45 minutes of me talking in the first place, and so we need to leave all the questions to the end for 45 minutes and have a conversation, or we can converse all the way through. Uh, my preference would be to do the latter, let's talk, but uh, that's up to you to decide how you wish to do it. So, um, there we are. First experience, Cyprus. Uh, my particular job at that time was the second in command of administration company, and I was actually at the Nicosia Airport, and had a slightly removed perspective from the day-to-day -day life on the line but certainly got to see a little bit of the ebb and flow of some of the larger pieces of Cyprus. And the traditional peacekeeping operation, the classic sense of the word, you've got some forces by an international community that are interposed between two uh, combatants to keep the military situation stable and quiet to allow the political section to go forward. So to go forward. Um, the great difficulty of Cyprus when I was there in 89 was that the, there was no political solution being sought. Effectively, one side had everything that they felt they wanted, the other side was very unhappy, and there was no dialogue. So it was a real state that it was, uh, I think, the writing was on the wall. 
bankrupt idea that was still in force. There was no political dynasty for the situation. The military was just there filling the role of keeping people apart. Of essentially two sides that militarily didn't want to tangle with each other anymore. Uh, there was, however, some tactical political activity going on. Um, the fact of the matter was the populations had been separated in 72, and that remorseless impact of the separation of populations that had been to some degree intermingled beforehand was having a telling effect. Um, meeting of civic leaders, the old mayors uh, of Cyprus, of, of Nicosia got together with their, their city councils. They all knew each other very well. They were in the 50s and 60s. But they pointed out that their children, and certainly their grandchildren, had absolutely no idea of the reality of anyone else in Cyprus. And they said that is where fundamentally the landscape is being changed. And there was no way to bridge that gap. There were some uh, lingering hatreds and uh, unfulfilled expectations on the Greek-Cypriot side. Wouldn't walk home was a way to get around political stasis that was being orchestrated by the, the Greek-Cypriot government to try and force the issue and bring the political stasis out of being, but it was a failed activity because it was tactical. It ran afoul of the Turkish military and really didn't achieve the, the political engagement that they would like to because they just couldn't cross the frontier and create a, a political problem that was dealt with very tactically. Um, from the UN perspective, very stovepipe operations. Not a lot of talking between the various lines of the UN organizations. They all did their own thing on their own. It's very typical of UN operations. So the military was somewhat divorced from the humanitarian aid, from the High Commission on Refugees, from uh, the folks taking care of UNICEF and the like. Um, and largely everyone felt marginalized because they knew the political situation wasn't moving. And so there was no imperative on our part to really have any dialogue in between each other. Uh, so very still part, not very cooperative, and certainly no coherent activity on any, on any one issue by the team that was there, UN or otherwise, to move things along and see something happen. So, as I said, brain was on the wall. That was my experience for six months of largely ossified uh, system that uh, was perfect for the situation uh, in terms of keeping it stable, but not actually resolving the problem. The, uh, the next experience I had was several years later, and a rather unique experience for, um, for a Canadian is that I became a member of the European Community Monitor, Monitor Mission in Yugoslavia, which had grown out of the EUMM and was uh, the, the EU, then EC's, operation in Yugoslavia to act when the UN had not. You recall from that period of time when Yugoslavia started falling apart, the UN uh, and NATO stayed as far away from it as they possibly could. The EU decided they need to do something to exert themselves as an organization. They sent in a monitoring mission, which, uh, from my understanding, talking to some people who were there, both sides as well as some Europeans, was a, to an extent, a thinly veiled intelligence operation to find out what was actually in Yugoslavia, uh, more than actually trying to help resolve and mitigate the conflict. So that, that caused some difficulties, as you can imagine. And the reason that brought in Canada, because when they renewed the mandate and expanded into, uh, into a greater portion of Bosnia, in fact, brought it into Bosnia after Croatia, but one of the stipulations was some uh, Eastern Bloc countries and some non-aligned countries and Canada, or uh, the North American country, was actually after coping for the US and got us instead, uh, would join the mission to bring a sense of um, equanimity to the mission and uh, reduce the overt intelligence gap that had been going on. The uh, point at which I read mission, the UN had, had stepped in by that point. So there was a significant UK, UN peacekeeping force based in Croatia for the situation there, plus Bosnia. 
And uh, what I saw was a fairly dynamic situation where militarily it had not been resolved. You remember through 89, 90, 91, 92, there was ongoing military operations by one side or the other, usually regional or sub-regional, but certainly a very dynamic military situation going on where there was a perception of threat for everyone, so there was, there was work going on there. Plus politically, humanitarian uh, situation, others, all very dynamic, a lot of work being done and a lot of organizations involved in making things happen principally the UN, but, it, but there was not a change in model. It was very stovepipe, while there were UN headquarters uh, and representatives from the various UN organizations that were there, uh, they largely operated independently according to UN New York guidelines and directions from the various directorates without the ability, the mechanism to coordinate to achieve the, the ends that the uh, high representative would like to see achieved. He uh, operated on his own on political sphere and the rest of their operations he did work on its own, own momentum and the desires of the command at the time without a lot of apparent coordination. Now I say this standing outside within the EC. The EC mission had its own problems in that um, leadership rotated every six months with the change of leadership of the EC, which meant you had a really difficult relationship with the organization itself, and it itself was not connected to any of the other EU or EC-sponsored organizations that were working there. Good example was that as I as monitor uh, spent some time doing a survey of where a particular need in terms of food aid was at to find out that this had already been done by the uh, EC Food Aid Agency and they were delivering food aid on a completely different schedule in different areas where I was operating without having consulted or discussed or even advised us this was going to happen. Hugely embarrassing personally but also an, an indication that EEC was not able to orchestrate their own activity. They had adopted a model that would be more effective. So uh, increasingly problematic. Um, another example uh, that I think was instructive at the time, uh, certainly for the view I had later on, was um, where I was operating within BHATCH, the western end of the uh, which became a protected area later on, which caused huge confusion to all and sundry, including the UN agencies, because no one was really sure whatever that meant when it was at home. And I don't think it was ever really adequately explained. And certainly the, the shallowness of the statement was exposed, not by the Bosnian Serbs, but actually by the Croatian Serbs, who uh, up until uh, that period of time had lived in relative comfort with that region of Bosnia and the fact that it was controlled by the Bosnian government, largely Muslim and not Serb. Uh, they took it upon themselves the urging of their uh, Bosnian Serb counterparts actually advanced several miles into uh, into the area uh, to to uh, little reaction from anyone, and so it sh showed how hollow the conflict of that area was. So, so um, really difficult. Sorry, 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 better contextualization in which years? Uh, sorry, I was there in uh, 1993. I was there 93, so from February 93 until September 93. And the, the protected areas were declared, I think, in June of 93, if I recall correctly. Uh, largely around uh, the areas of Srebrenica and um, the other uh, enclave that was of particular interest. But um, certainly uh, the supplies of the Hatch residents of that region, they were also included in the protected area. Um, they, were, um, they didn't know what it meant, and uh, they were actually quite fearful of what that meant because they felt it was sort of brought them out of the shadows and living a very comfortable life out of the headlines. Suddenly, they were in the headlines and someone feel they need to do something about them. Cyprus, I was there in uh, 89, 90. 
So as, as we sort of transition from the classic model of peacekeeping to the more dynamic of uh, military inventions, interventions that were peacemaking, peace building, war stopping, there was all sorts of terms that were flying around kind of exactly what was going on since it obviously wasn't keeping the peace because there was no peace to keep. So sorry. A lot, of, a lot of chaos, a lot of uh, confusion, and it allowed for a lot of uh, independent tactical operations. Uh, my best example of that was in conversations with the uh, battalion commander of the French battalion that was uh, in the Bihatch region, who, uh, in a rather candid uh, interview that uh, I and my EC partner had with him on, on his departure, uh, pointed out that um, it was uh, interesting getting directions because he would get directions from uh, not only Sarajevo, but he also get in instructions from Paris, and he get instructions from New York, directly uh, from UN headquarters. And uh, it, it allowed him great creative action because depending on what it is he wanted to do, he could find an order from one of the three of them that would allow him to do that. And so he was a very aggressive proponent of the security of the area. Um, became essentially the, uh, the guarantor of security, took uh, his uh, heavy armored cars, dug them into positions to point towards the, uh, the Bosnian uh, Serbs, to make the point that this was an issue for him to secure as opposed to anything they might feel in terms of uh, trying to work around the Bosnian and Muslim community. And it was very aggressive at that. It pointed out that in operations like this, you really need to bring something along with you that was unassailable, that gave you a sense of power, uh, and that you used it ruthlessly. He understood where his power stemmed from. It was from his ability to uh, project force, uh, to project strength, and to, uh, to arrange for the transport of items, because he was a transport battalion, actually, so he was given some combat assets in addition. Uh, I saw that exercise, curiously enough, by the International Committee of the Red Cross. The representative in Behatch understood very, very clearly where the source of his power flowed, and that was because he was responsible for the, uh, the hose pipe he could turn on on food aid. And uh, so he used that to obtain for himself what he needed, which was access to see what was going on. And over the course of two months, in some very tough negotiations with the, uh, the Bosnian Serbs beyond the Bihatch area further east, he secured himself freedom of access and freedom of delivery because they were desperate to get the food. And uh, really interesting, not what the ICRC was portrayed as, as being at the time. They were seen as being a very soft, very incapable organization, and he certainly uh, put pay to that through a very ruthless, pragmatic set of negotiations, and he was able to get things but the UN, EC, and many other organizations <coughs> could not because he wielded his weapon of aid very, very effectively. It was an interesting lesson to watch. Also learned that uh, without that ability to influence situations that uh, your credibility and why you were engaged by various individuals would, would vary tremendously. EC didn't bring a lot to the table uh, when, when compared to the UN and other aid agencies. It was a very small organization, very much monitoring. Uh, I came with industry background, ended up doing monitoring in the agricultural area, the cultural area, the legal area, the political area, everything but military because I was covered by everybody else. But I didn't bring any resources with me to actually influence change in those areas. I could have great conversations, send back great situation reports, but then when it actually came to say, there's an issue here that needs addressed, there was nothing I could do. And uh, even when it came to brokering issues between the two forces, um, it was a question of credibility. 
and we discovered about halfway through that uh, whether it was the UN or the ECRML, very little credibility to be able to manage issues because we discovered that if the problem needed to be solved, and both sides agreed it needed to be solved, they would just go and solve it. And uh, the classic on this was a, a body exchange. We struggled for two months between the UN and ourselves to broker an arrangement where we would monitor the exchange of bodies because one side or the other seemed to get reticent. Um, it fell apart uh, because one side pulled out. And when we went back a week and a half later to say, okay, can we try this again? They said, oh, it's done. And I said, what do you mean? Well, we got it sorted out. We just got on the radio to talk to each other and it was done a week, a week after. So about two days after it fell apart, they just put it together and made it happen. Which really put us into the box of why exactly are we here and what are we doing? You know, that, that issue of credibility and the ability to, to bring something to the table to resolve the situation is very important. And uh, you get that lesson very quickly in those negotiators. It was also my first uh, opportunity to have a look at what does the all-armed team look like and start developing some thoughts on, it's not just about the military and what they bring to the table, but you have all sorts of international organizations very familiar, the ICRC, UNHCR, World Food Program, but also some places, individuals like the International Federation, Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, very active in, in, in uh, Yugoslavia, which is all the national Red Crosses and Red Crescents acting as a group coming from a national perspective to do some of the things the Red Cross does. In incredibly confusing. You know, I met a Canadian uh, from Manitoba, from Manitoba Red Cross, who's acting on behalf of the Canadian Red Cross Society, working in Boston. <coughs> No idea that that was going on. The Canadian Red Cross was even involved in the issue. So uh, you know, the players that show up uh, can surprise you quite often, and they have, my experience has been little to no understanding what other people are doing. And very particularly from my perspective, they don't understand what the military is doing and have no way of, of bridging that gap to figure out how we relate to each other at all, and we usually do. And then what can you do about each other's operations in terms of influencing them? or shaping your own operations to take advantage of whatever it is that they are doing that would be benefit for you. So um, that brought me several years later my first operational experience as an attaché, and that was actually here in London as the Army Advisor. And that was from uh, 0407. And um, I now see oper military operations and inventions from a completely different perspective is that at the strategic level, some of the conversations that led to nations committing to forces, and at that time, between 0407 is when the mission in Afghanistan really evolved quite considerably from uh, you know, a, a largely American-led intervention uh, with some UN presence in uh, Kabul, as you recall, to the UN uh, and in the international community preparing to expand the operation to work in greater partnership with the Americans and actually negotiate uh, a transition from a national specific U.S. operation to a multinational operation and largely centered on NATO under uh, a U.N. authority, although it wasn't a U.N. operation. The, um, the interesting thing about that, from my perspective, watching it go forward, was that there was actually two conversations that were occurring at the same time. The first was, what do we do about Afghanistan and the large piece of Al-Qaeda what does that mean in Afghanistan, and how does the international community, NATO in specific, Canada, the UK, respond to the American declaration of an Article 5 attack? An Article 5 attacks are articulated in their operations in Afghanistan to eliminate the Al-Qaeda where they believe the, uh, the genesis of the attacks in the United States came from. 
How do you deal with that aspect within the NATO construct? What does that mean? How do you make that work? How do you respond? Is it right? The second, and is Afghanistan the right place to do it? The other conversation that occurred was, in fact, more about NATO and the future of NATO than anything that actually was going on in Afghanistan. And that was, Cold War is, is coming to a close, Bosnia is coming to a close, we're, we're looking at what the future looks like. What the heck does NATO need to do now? Is it purely and simply an Article 5 organization that guarantees collective security in Europe? Or is it something that can now extend the Article 5 relationship and the security and the cooperation and the mutual security and interoperability, and can we use that to go beyond regional and start playing a more significant role in the global context? And it was very difficult at times to separate the two. My perspective on this is that while people were concerned about the Afghanistan situation, make sure they did that right, it wasn't so much about Afghanistan that was a concern. Yeah, Afghanistan happened to be the place in which all this was playing out. And I think over the course of time, if you watch some of the dialogue out there, it is very much about everything but Afghanistan. And everything about NATO, collective security and operations, interoperability, and are we going to maintain the NATO, NATO alliance and how are we going to do that? A dynamic of stay-at-home defense versus expedition defense still continues to play out to this day as uh, they go forward to the next summit. It's going to continue to talk that issue. Uh, what are the investments required to make that happen? So, and that was point, very pointed through the Afghanistan experience. The, um, and, and it was very much about how does Canada play a role, how does any nation play a role when you have some significant interest in what's going on? And certainly the American interest was to ensure that they had their allies with them. They, uh, they had already Iraq that was in full swing. They were determined to make a better play of, of what was going on in Afghanistan. How is the UK and how is Canada going to relate to that? So we had some really good discussions about how that relation works uh, and where was the stretch coming? And uh, the end result for that was that Canada decided to take a leadership role in Kandahar in a fairly significant way uh, with the United Kingdom very much of the mind that in order to ensure that NATO was continuing to be seen as relevant to the world, more stick to the US, is that NATO had to act strongly in Afghanistan. And so uh, between ourselves with some other partner nations, it was very much a discussion, let's get there, let's make sure we're doing something relevant and important, and it is as much about saving NATO <coughs> as it is, and our relationship with our allies as it is about going to Afghanistan. So, Again, it comes back to that relationship piece. How do you determine what your team is, and how do you then act in concert with them, make things happen? Are you joined up? One of the things that wasn't discussed at that point uh, at all in detail was well, how did NATO relate to everybody else that was sitting there in theater? It's very much American forces, NATO forces, but the dynamic of the political reality, the orchestration of that piece, the relationship with the UN, who was there already, and all the aid agencies, development agencies, and the other pieces that were there really didn't get much discussion because we're all focused on the military side. That then set the stage for me to be in uh, Afghanistan. I was there from 09 to 10. And I had to try and figure out what I need to do. This is what I was tasked to do as an attache in London. Pretty eminent. Provide liaison representation, coordination, and monitoring. 
between our department and the armed force and the department and armed forces industry and other protein agencies in the UK to support Canadian forces aim and objectives for the national objectives. I provide the advice to the uh, High Commissioner and I would do all the work between ourselves and the armed forces of uh, the UK to make sure there's good personal and professional relationships and institutional relationships. So that background was what set me up to go to, uh, to Afghanistan. There was where I had my relationships. Okay. As you can see, it's not all about the military. There's significant relationships in many, many other organizations from places like here to RUSI, ISIS, to the Foreign Commonwealth Office, to uh, veterans organizations, other think tanks, you know, all over the place. Local leaders, civic leaders about Canada and armed forces. And here in particular, UK, a lot about the history, about the fact that um, a great deal of Canadian history is, is quite literally buried in the UK. Mm -hmm. Is that we have uh, well over 100 memorial services that we attend, either through High Commission staff or exchange liaison officers here in the UK, from the north of Scotland down through the Dover, uh, not counting anything that goes on, uh, which is not my remit, that goes on in Belgium and France, that's handled by the French VA. But we have regular uh, opportunities to um, interact with uh, certain spheres because they remember very clearly what, what happened during two world wars, and that's only going to get busier in the next couple of years, you imagine. So you can see that that's a, a rather interesting preparation to step into an active theater of engagement. I'll hesitate to say war, but a lot of things were going on. Very dynamic, kinetic environment uh, of uh, Kabul. Some of the personalities. Um, you'll recognize on the left-hand side uh, two significant personalities, one of whom continues to play a fairly significant role within Afghanistan today, the other one not so much. Uh, in the center, you, you have uh, Ambassador Crosby, who is my boss in theater, uh, who spent two years uh, in Afghanistan, unusually most spend one year, uh, very effective uh, in doing what he needed to do, and I'll talk about that in a second. On the right, again, uh, President Karzai and then uh, General Petraeus. And then the types of activities from the community interaction, to the patrolling, everything in between. The uh, picture there in the center that's, uh, that uh, is partially covered is actually of, of Kabul at night. A, a city of several millions of people, uh, absolutely massive, uh, and a just thriving, thrumming metropolis uh, that is unbelievable. See, I'm not sure how many people have had the opportunity to go there at any time in their life. But just a, a complete dynamic, not at all what anyone expects. When you see the pictures and videos, of what was going on in Afghanistan in the rural areas and then compare that to Kabul, it's just night and day. And even, even those pictures that do come from Kabul, I don't think really uh, convey well um, the nature of the city. Quite curious. When I arrived there, October of 2009, uh, it was in the aftermath of the first round of uh, new elections that re-elected President Karzai. It was the most depressive, depressing, atmosphere to work in I have ever stepped into. Um, I've coined it as schizo uh, institutional schizophrenic PTSD. The, the, um, if it was, I think, an absolute atmosphere of failure, complete and utter failure, despite the successes that had occurred at the time, the way in which the election panned out uh, in terms of results and conduct while showing a great deal of increase 
in the democratic process uh, were so far below the unnaturally high expectations that people had allowed themselves to buy in, even at the senior leadership level on the ground, it came as such a terrible shock and disappointment that everybody retreated into their shells. Uh, when I arrived there, uh, there was no connectivity between ISAF, which was on the verge of a massive increase, uh, tidal wave of resources that was going to show up, between ISAF between the and the embassies, between ISAF and the UN, <coughs> who had completely had their <coughs> reputation destroyed. Uh, even um, the limited utility they had in their rather disjointed stovepipe approach, uh, they had been completely destroyed in their credibility to, to run, monitor, advise on elections to see some of the success. The, uh, the insult to injury was added uh, just after I arrived from the UN house that was about a half kilometer away from me was attacked. You may recall that where the uh, suicide bombers broke in and started trying to kill the UN employees who were there. They only foiled because there were two security agents there who had uh, not turned in their weapons. The bombers didn't know about them. They were able to hold off the bombers until the uh, security forces were able to break in several hours later and kill the, uh, the bombers. Saved a great number of people. Uh, that, that completely devastated the UN's uh, confidence in itself. And they uh, really had, they struggled for many months thereafter to to believe in themselves and even the, the slightest regard. Mm -hmm. and I'll give Mr. Dimastura, who became the new high representative, a great deal of credit for restoring um, some of the confidence and some of the uh, credibility of the UN in, in brokering issues moving forward. It was just tremendous. Uh, it was on the verge of the impending US military arrival. And that wasn't just the military arrival, which was overwhelming in its own right, but the billions of dollars that were devoted to aid as well as uh, an absolute phalanx of civil servants and others that showed up in, in concert with the military arrival to completely um, overwhelm the area. Um, it was the pain of many, and I share it, an uh, embarrassment of riches. It was uh, too much of a good thing and really uh, disenabled the ability of, of the organization themselves, plus the Afghan government, to act confidently, incredibly, to, to deal with what was going on around them. Real problem. Um, I said, no one was talking to each other. Everyone was really unhappy about where they were at. Um, dismayed with the level of attention they were getting and the, uh, the, the approach that was being taken by the US. And as concerned as ever with the level of corruption that was extant within the country. Uh, number of interesting discussions about corruption. The military became very involved in this because, of course, with the amount of money that they were controlling, some would say inappropriately, because they shouldn't have had control over money that's being flowed into aid and development work, especially into things such things as the agricultural ministry, the uh, interior ministry, the health ministry, the education ministry, and a whole host of other areas. Um, their ability to identify appropriate uses for the money and then appropriate mechanisms to make sure the money was spent there most military officers and NCOs don't have that level of experience, don't have that familiarity with some of those details. So there's a lot of concern about that. There's an environment I walked into, prepared as I was, with, with the institutional strategic piece of dealing with a relatively stable, uh, stable ally and a strategic plane, and uh, walked in saying, okay, what does all this mean? In a very confused situation, very depressed organization, and um, a lot of uncertainty about where to go next because there had been so much hope invested in the, um, in the aspect of elections bringing a shining light to the event and that things would start getting 
better rapidly because democracy would have taken hold in Afghanistan. There was also a great deal of confusion about who was going to lead the effort. ISAP reorganized into the strategic headquarters plus the ISAP Joint Force Headquarters, which ran the military operations, and then the military training wing of ISAP to conduct the establishment building within the security infrastructure. They had a weight that couldn't be ignored, and money, and time, and effort, and number of people out there. They could not be ignored. They were obviously going to play a very significant role. <coughs> uh, but there were other players out there as well. The UN, everyone agreed, morally, ethically, uh, needed to play a role but they were bankrupted at the time uh, and needed a chance to re regroup. They could not provide the leadership. Um, NATO was not seen as a particularly credible leader for the entire effort because of the what was perceived as being a particular focus on military operations and the security piece and in, an inappropriate for leadership role in any other domain. Uh, if you look at the Red Cross and other aid agencies, they could possibly play a role in certain areas but they were restricted because of their philosophy towards certain aspects of the counterinsurgency versus a nation-building exercise versus a let's get rid of al-Qaeda exercise, which no one was really sure which one it was. And even those that were sure, they knew what it was, that opinion wasn't shared between everyone. So who was going to lead the operation and who was going to talk? It was a real problem in what was going on. And certainly the nations, uh, to my experience, proved to be a bit... Um, schizophrenic on this as well, where they would act one way within the NATO senior structure, NATO headquarters in Brussels. Um, it seemed to play out slightly differently in the ISAF headquarters in terms of the way that the national representatives, whether civil or military, would portray certain aspects. And then you had the embassies that were there as well, some of whom had a level of control over the national agents, various aid agencies that were nationally based, uh, and some that didn't. And even those embassies seem to portray a slightly different perspective from what was being done within ISAF and within NATO headquarters. Uh, and in that regard, I would say that the United States struggled as much as anyone else, and that they had some very significant uh, players uh, within country uh, with some significant resources at hand, and uh, they, I think, had difficulties from time to time making sure they were coordinated in their activities as well. Uh, not because in any one case someone was actually working against anyone else in a malicious or evil manner. It's because they all had their own perspective. They were all working very hard to achieve success the way they thought was necessary. But there was clearly a lack of coordination that you could rely upon from time to time. So, I walk in, brand new, uh, a little bit of understanding of the Afghan situation while I do. Uh, I spent most of my time building bridges. Most of my counterparts were attachés, and there were a number uh, spent their time doing that. Theoretically, I was the uh, senior military advisor of the nation to the ambassador, who was the senior uh, official of Canada to represent the perspective of Canada to the uh, the Afghan government and anyone else who happened to be in the, in the area. Uh, the reality was that as military officer, I had five general officers. I was a colonel at the time. Five general officers, at least one to two ranks more senior than me that were much more regularly talking to uh, National Defense Headquarters and the operational command that uh, generated Canadian operations and so were much better placed to provide um, the advice that they thought ISAF and occasionally an ambassador needed. Interesting, interesting uh, dynamic to be in. And in terms of the, uh, the national perspective, um, it wasn't clear either for Canada whether or not the ambassador had the final say because there was an independent 
advisor to the mission in Kandahar, who was providing political and national advice to the operations of Kenyan forces down there, plus also some advice to the Kandahar government, that they worked to keep joined up, but they were two different people uh, working in two different areas uh, with two different areas of responsibility, <coughs> one at the national level and one at the regional. And so we, we uh, constructed uh, a structure that uh, could lead for to some friction, as much as we pointed out the, the, uh, the difficulties in other people's organizations. So I spent a lot of time building bridges um, because I was tired at that point of watching organizations go about doing their own business their own way without any regard to anyone else. And I had to do that as much within the embassy where that sense of depression and despair was was present as much as anywhere else. Um, and I found myself in a pretty good position actually because uh, I was dressed mostly like this most days. Um, the only way the embassy staff were able to t distinguish between me and them was that I would carry a pistol and they wouldn't, which they found really interesting. I became a very popular person actually going back and forth to ISAF headquarters because I would walk. <coughs> they would have to wait for an armored car. If they went with me, they could walk. So uh, I had some great, I used that as an opportunity to, to actually get to know many of the embassy staff in a way that they would not normally have done. And use that as an opportunity to start talking about what was going on. I spent a lot of time with embassy staff and international organization staff who never actually had a conversation with anyone military in the two years they've been there to explain what was going on in ISAF headquarters and how they were as much bound by the situation as these guys were and where were the opportunities to talk. And oh, by the way, you, you just can't ignore them. They're the elephant that's in the room. You have, to, you have to work around them or with them to be aware of them. You cannot just go and do stuff because you will lose your effect or you'll be overlaid by something that is being done by them and work across purposes. So for about uh, my first six months, or 10 months tour, it was building bridges and getting people to talk to them inside the embassy to start with, and they're using exactly the same technique on the military side in ISAF because 99% uh, of the headquarters of the military, I could walk in, and while they would look at me to start with like, what's the city doing here? I had access passed for my military status um, I was able to relatively quickly, um, once they realized I was carrying a pistol and no one else did, it was in civilian attire, get across the bridge and build the bridge for the military piece and say, okay, so I've been talking to some of those uh, left-wing folks you've been ignoring for the last four months as you've been building up and doing things. That, um, I know you're working in the Department of Health and you're making plans for this and this. I said, have you talked to these guys because they've been working for as advisors the last two months, two years, or 20 years, they have some great context, great situation we're in, and they can actually tell you what's going on because I know in talking to you, you haven't talked to the Department of Health about what you're doing here. You're just making plans about how you're going to help them. Took about six months for them to actually start having dialogue. Um, there was one Marine Corps officer working in ISAF headquarters in their joint plans who absolutely from the get-go got it, and he was worth um, a thousand uh, other people there because he understood that concept was actually really good in talking to people who weren't wearing the uniform, and he became the, uh, the agent inside on a continuous basis to keep on putting forward. Uh, he was able to sell within ISAF headquarters the idea of a weekly meeting to talk about interagency cooperation, where he got several of the other cells to sit down. We managed to get the embassies sitting in, we managed to get the other agencies coming in. By the time I left, we had about 30 people at the table when we started with three, uh, three months before that. And that actually led to a senior level conference. We think so maybe we'll go the other way around. That actually built into a senior level conference where the ambassadors, the aid agency heads, plus <coughs> the senior leaders of ISAF would sit down and share some perspectives and consult. Didn't always agree, 
but I did see within both the international agencies and ISAF a change in some of the behaviors of the way they were going about doing things. So they're actually talking and considering the other person's viewpoint. Didn't change the objectives they had to work on. Um, the, the fact that uh, ISAF largely responded male and a good measure nationally to the US presence, and they made no bones about that. They, they had their remit, but they had me. But they certainly started shading their behaviors and the way they were going about doing things, acknowledging the other players in the room uh, to the advantage of the Afghans. Or so I can say the Afghans, not the Afghans. The Afghan, of course, is the currency. <laughs> Afghan is the individual. Uh, and I'll, I'll give um, General Crystal a great deal of credit for managing that change as well, because he brought with him an approach that had not necessarily been well-rooted prior to his arrival. Um, he really came with the aspect that he was in support of the Afghan government and the Afghan military and the Afghan departments, and embedded that in the way he dealt with them and had taught his staff to start, start dealing with. He brought in his, in his partners to the, uh, the weekly uh, and daily video conferences he had with his commanders. So the Afghan commander was there with him, his subordinate formations, when they had the video conferencing capability, were brought in. This was th this this went off like a bomb inside the uh, tactical operations center because they had never had an Afghan inside or an Afghan connected to the entire month of the campaign. He said, "No, we're supposed to be supporting them. Let's get them in and talk to them about what we think we ought to do, and then be clear about it when we're talking to ourselves that they're included." It was a tremendous step forward and did engender a lot of change in the way that the ISAF went on with their working things. Did make everything good. Didn't get everyone to the same page on whether or not they were fighting a counterinsurgency, where they were doing an aid, an aid and uh, you know, a humanitarian aid operation, were they doing a uh, nation building operation, were they doing a long-term development operation, there was still a large amount of variance of opinion there, but at least you had people talking about what's going on and you could compare your notes to what you're doing so you didn't automatically step on each other as you're doing that. It was a tremendous step forward and really, really well appreciated, I think, over the course of time. Certainly, um, High Representative Bimister, as I said, when he got on the ground, was very active in working that as well, uh, and uh, partnered in an obvious way with the, the senior civilian representative of NATO, as well as the commander, to uh, present. Uh, whenever they had big issues to talk about, the three of them would sit down with the players to do that. They were no longer meeting on a regular basis by themselves. I think that was a very important change. But you need to 